Finance and Leadership, FTI's Financial Services Podcast. FTI is a global advisory firm. We help organizations manage change, mitigate risk, and resolve disputes. I'm your host, Tilsia Toledo. I have over 25 years of experience in the financial services industry. This show is about the people I've met along the way and leading during uncertain times. Please enjoy. Today's guest is Chris Cully. Chris is a partner in Mayor Brown's Washington, D.C. office and a member of the Consumer Financial Services Group. Chris Cully, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks to Lucia for having me. We are super excited to have you. One of the things that I wanted to start out with is how we met, because part of the reason how we are connected is that you are the former president of Women in Housing and Finance. And full disclosure, I'm a board member, excited to join the board this year. But tell us a little bit about your relationship with the organization and how you became the president. Yeah, you know, interestingly, I've been a part of and engaged in WHF for a long time. And I actually remember meeting you at an event. And I think that's what I've enjoyed the most about it is all the people that I've met. But I got involved as a new professional. I was working at the Department of Housing and Urban Development and heard about the organization somehow. I don't even remember how, but I thought, women? Well, I'm a woman. Housing, finance, that's me. This is perfect. And uh, I'm a bit of a joiner. And so I thought I would get involved. And I remember the first event I attended, the speaker was uh, William Apgar, who at the time was the FHA commissioner. And here I was working at HUD, but I went to this WHF event and felt like I learned more about the think tank housing policy from that event and just the ability to engage with him and to hear others engage with him and really just got a lot out of it. And so over the years, I continued to attend. At one point, they asked me to be the general counsel, which was a fun way to get involved. And you'll find, and I, I hope you'll find, Tilsia, that the more you get involved, the more you care about it, and the more that you're interested, and the more you find that there's some aspect of the industry that you hadn't heard of, and other people who are working in the industry that you hadn't met. So that's how I got involved, and just, you know, now I just feel like it's a group of people that, you know, that I just wouldn't have met otherwise. So I've really enjoyed that part of it. I've certainly enjoyed my whole experience with the organization. I mean, I started really going to the symposiums. So that's what got me into it. And it's part of the reason why I've been so active with the symposium, because that was my way in. But you eventually decided to go ahead and run and and become president. So tell us a little bit about that. The first time I decided that I wanted to kind of run and be, you know, a leader in the organization, I had to run against someone who was just the most daunting opponent. You'll know Lindsay Johnson, who is the head of USMI, and she has been involved in WHF for a long, long, long time. So silly enough, I decided to run against her in an election, which uh, was wonderful. She won and I lost, (laughs) but that did not scare me away. So I, I ran again. It taught me that, you know, you can lose and still throw your Uh, hat back into the ring. But, you know, it's an organization where the more you put into it, the more you get out of it. So thrilled to have someone like you who really has taken the role on the board kind of by the teeth and jumped right in with both feet because, you know, again, the more you put in, the more you get out. So maybe you'll be the president of WHF someday, the illustrious crown or rest. 
you know, on your head as well. Oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't actually get a crown, but I think, you know, as a past president, maybe I can start new traditions. So there you go. Hey, we can, <laughs> we can go ahead and pass that along. I know you're a leader in various different areas, but, but I'm curious about just overall as a leader, what are the lessons that you've learned about yourself? I mean, we talked a little about resiliency. You ran once, it didn't work out, but you were resilient, you persevered. So what are some of the lessons that you've learned about yourself? Well, and that is true. It's, you know, a lot of us have been pretty hard driving folks, right? And so we're used to kind of being competitive, being ahead of our peers. And it was good to just learn that, hey, you know, try again next time. So there is some resiliency it's certainly not being the leader of the free world. So there, you know, so there aren't a lot of downsides to to making leadership mistakes, but it did teach me a lot. I mean, it teaches me that I'm kind of naturally a, a consensus seeker, you know, a collaborative person. I want to get everybody's input. And then it also taught me that that's sometimes just not possible. And, you know, we talked, don't overthink it, don't overthink it. Sometimes you just need to move forward. And again, there aren't that many downsides, thankfully, to, you know, the difference between two choices. And that was, you know, crazy that it took me this long to learn that. But it was a nice uh, breath of fresh air to say, you know what, sometimes when there are two pretty good choices, just make one and go for it and move move along. You know, that it happens. There are a lot of people with a lot of opinions. And, you know, sometimes it just takes somebody to say, this is the way we're going to go. And, you know, if it doesn't work out, we'll go a different direction. And also to stay on top of your emails. It's a very good leader lesson there is you can't procrastinate the emails because they don't go away. You have to just read them. No, those are some great lessons <laughs> that I think all of us can pick up and run with. Let's talk a little bit about your day job. You're ah. a partner at Mayor Brown and you focus on consumer finance. So tell us a little bit about what are you seeing in the consumer finance space? It's a really fun space these days. You know, when I started at HUD and then joined the law firm, and at that time, the big issue was very anti. It was anti-predatory lending. There was a lot of regulations, and it was a fun time to be a lawyer. Probably not as much fun to be in the industry, just because, again, it was this really crackdown kind of atmosphere. But now I feel like things are just all about innovation. There are so many creative types out there, making solutions, finding out better ways to get to the consumer, better ways of allowing the consumer to kind of manage their finances, to make it easy, to make it seamless. New upstarts, working with some of the large banks with these historical relationships with the consumer. So I've seen a lot of really cool advances, artificial intelligence and its impact on the consumer. We've almost even gotten to this 2.0 stage with AI because they're starting to realize that it could be even better than just predictive of outcomes. It can be fair and it can be promotional. It can provide access to credit. So I'm seeing a lot of that often as a regulatory compliance attorney, you see the frustration that those innovators slam into because the regulation just doesn't, it can't maybe, but it just doesn't quite keep up. And so there's always this 
tug and pull of, come on, you know, let us do this. Think of all the good it's going to do for your depositors and for your consumers. And so they're kind of trying to yank the state and federal regulators into the 21st century. Not that they're not, but I mean, it's hard to turn a ship on a dime. So there's that, the innovation. I also see there's a lot of reactionary sense from regulation. And again, it it shows itself in the reaction to innovation, but the reaction to crises. We've got our newest crises. It's not last crisis, but, you know, I don't know if there's a way to get on top of the heap, but certainly there's a lot of reaction to the heap and continuing to predict crazy outcomes is the nature of my business. And tell us a little bit more about how are you working with clients on that end? You know, it's changed a lot. Obviously, everybody's lives have changed a lot the last nine months or so, but Now, I mean, I do quite a bit of work in the mortgage space, so residential mortgages. And as you know, that market has just been nutso. You know, rates are low. Mortgages are flying off the shelves at the front ends. Everybody's really busy, but then not really at the back end, but at the mortgage servicing realm. I mean, that's where some of the crisis management has come up. So there are a lot of mortgage originations, but the servicing of those mortgages has been a real hot spot in the last nine months. How do we help borrowers who are nervous about their ability to pay or who have lost their jobs and actually can't pay? And what does that mean for the flow of funds through the mortgage finance system? So that's a lot of what we've been helping our clients with is number one, how to manage the volume at the front end and how to really treat the borrowers fairly in a compliant manner in the back end, so to speak. And you have the benefit of having spent time at HUD, so you're able to bring a lot of different perspectives from the standpoint of what regulators may be thinking about and how they may be looking to apply certain things, you know, now that you're on this side. Are there any lessons that you want to make sure that your clients are mindful of as we're going through this process? Um, maybe some. I, I definitely have a bit of a perspective. It seems like it's been a long time ago now, but there, I have perhaps a bit more sympathy for the regulators than some of my clients do. I, I know that if I were trying to run a business and it felt like I was just running into regulatory walls wherever I went, I mean, I wouldn't be terribly sympathetic, but I do see a lot of benevolence among the regulators. I mean, they honestly are trying to come up with solutions. They're not actually trying to be obstinate hurdles to be overcome. And so, you know, I get caught between those two kind of conflicting feelings. But I do think there is a sense in which there are a lot of smart people who work at these regulatory agencies. They may not have, you know, 30 years of experience in running the business, but they certainly are trying to do the best that they can with kind of balancing their priorities. I don't know if I'm able to convince my clients of that, but I try. (laughs) Are there any uh, future thoughts that you have about the regulatory landscape, what people should be seeing in the horizon? Well, and as we're talking now, we've just come, you know, a month away from the election. I mean, it's on everyone's mind. It's a lot of cliches. Everyone thinks that we have, you know, a new uh, administration. We'll have, you know, a Democrat in the White House, and that's going to mean more regulatory issuances and a crackdown. I'm a bit less sure that that's going to happen right away. Number one, I think that there have been some sort of consumer protection regulatory 
activities that have been going on even among uh, a Republican administration. So I think that there's a lot to look out for, but I don't think it's going to be this onslaught of new regulation. You know, I think there'll be some focus on student loan debt and how to sort of deal with that, particularly in its consumer protection aspect, but also just as a matter of economic pressure. I think there'll probably be a lot more focus on fair lending. I think that there's a cohort of folks who believe that that's been a weakened effort and that that could be strengthened and that it's obviously a very important aspect of kind of regulatory oversight. Um, but I do think that there are a lot of other priorities too. So, you know, I think that while this is going to be a more active, I think, administration, I don't think it's going to be this sea change, at least not for maybe a couple of years. And I know that in one of the other sessions that you and I have been on, we talked about mini CFPB. Yeah. And I'm just curious about what your thoughts are about future entity that's going to be in California and is viewed yeah. as a mini CFPB. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I think, you know, we had heard about many CFPBs a couple of years ago, and it wasn't a reaction to, you know, the federal government is not doing enough to protect consumers. And so it's left up to the states. A lot of states have been fairly active consumer protection bodies in the past. And, you know, in some sense, they don't get as much newspaper print as the CFPB, but they, you know, they've been looking out for consumers for a long time. The thing, though, I think is that one state, California, they become an active, you know, a real active force. I mean, everyone does business in California, and so it will have a large impact. But as goes California, a lot of other states go too, and so sometimes they'll be the ones sort of taking the mountain head or whatever that metaphor is. But the other thing I think, though, is there are a lot of priorities among state consumer protection requirements. It's not always just financial. There are economic things. There are opioid crises. There are healthcare crises. And so there are a lot of things that are out there for the states to handle on limited budgets. And so, again, I think there will be some activity Again, I'm not sure it's an onslaught. I think it's just more of a, of a pressure point. Keep us all in the right direction. I mean, as we talk about the new administration, we know that climate change is one of the areas that the Biden administration is going to be focused on. Is that an area where you also provide any kind of advice to clients? You know, we're starting to. Certainly, you know, we're a big law firm. We have folks who've been thinking about this for a long time. We, as a kind of financial sector, I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but it's something we should have been thinking about 20, 30 years ago. And I think you're right that I think that there will be a focus on it. It's clear that it has a huge impact on the financial sector. I mean, every time we have an unexpected flood in Houston, we realize that we haven't quite gotten it right. It's difficult to manage to once-in-a-lifetime disasters that we know are going to happen, but we don't know exactly where and when. And so it's really hard to absorb the shocks to the system that those create. But obviously they do. The financial sector can kind of adjust, 
but it can't adjust when it doesn't see it coming. So when you have something like, again, Hurricane Harvey in, in Houston and the flood maps didn't reflect the fact that these whole neighborhoods were going to be uninsured for this flood damage, suddenly you have property prices that are out of whack. You have default impacts that are out of whack. The mortgage markets haven't adjusted. The investment, the Wall Street markets haven't adjusted. And so it just creates this shock. As, as a lawyer, sometimes we're not always the top of the heap of risk management. You know, we can tell you what the laws say, but, you know, this is often a, a situation that the laws just haven't addressed it yet. So we're hoping to become really trusted advisors to our clients because we at least have some industry knowledge. We have some knowledge of how the regulators might react. So you know, we can advise them to sort of get on top of it in advance. But it's difficult when you don't know where the blows are going to come from, you know, and money is easy to say, just stockpile a reserve of cash and you'll be fine. That's just not the way it works. Uh, you have to be a little bit more of a scalpel than a, than a sledgehammer on that. Are there any other areas that you're focused on? Thinking more about my personal life than my Yay, let's, yes. let's talk about your personal life. Listen, the podcast is about finance, leadership, and facts, right? And, and right, right. facts about you as a person. So I definitely want to, you know, want to make sure that the audience gets to know a little bit more about you. Oh, well, I just, you know, I'm obsessed about work, but I find myself in these kind of COVID times obsessing about other things too. Like we're all in our homes. So rather than the sort of being in our work environment and keeping things, I'm at work and drawing a boundary between your personal stuff. I find myself staring at the knobs on my kitchen cabinets and thinking I certainly need to dress up the knobs on my cabinets or I need to tune up my mountain bike or something. Find my mind wandering a bit. Then, of course, I have to make up for that uh, by working later into the evenings. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, remodeling is definitely a boom industry right yeah. now, right? For that same reason, we're spending so much time at home. People are remodeling. I'm obsessed with my Peloton bike, as a lot of people know. And I'm all I in. heard about you in that Peloton. That's right. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm all in. Well, that's at least a healthy obsession. Better than, you know, staring at your kitchen knobs. Well, listen, I think you want to have a pleasing environment, right? If you're going to stare at something, it may as well look good, right? Well, and speaking of, you know, from the consumer finance perspective, I understand there's a whole industry that's developed that helps, not not that it's a totally separate industry, but financing Pelotons or other types of exercise equipment uh, has also become a big point of consumer finance. They're uh, not always easy to pay for out of pocket. So you could just get some easy financing and throw some extra equipment in there. So that's been a, a big burgeoning industry. What other organizations and other initiatives are you involved in? Well, I've been thinking a little bit more about, so with WHF, I've been working, the, the nice thing about being a past president is you can do the stuff that you like with, without doing some of the stuff that you like a little bit less, but I've been learning a little bit more about website development. As you know, we've been trying to beef up the website, which is bigger and a smaller project than it seems. I've got a son who is a bit of a techie, and he's been teaching me a little bit about it. And I'm thinking maybe we all need to learn a little bit more about 
website design and about the coding that goes on behind it and the platforms that are available. And so I, I think that'll be my next hobby. You know, I, I get into this and then I realize that it's a, a bigger morass than I was actually willing to put my heart into. But I'm thinking that I need to take some techie classes and figure out how to do website design. Maybe that'll be my next career. <laughs> well, I love it. I actually, I mean, I used to be a big tech, you know, I'm not as in that field as I used to be because I actually learned coding. Uh, when I first started in consulting was oh, way do. back when, and I learned to code in COBOL. Ooh. Yeah, uh, I haven't coded in forever. I'm sure like there are all these new different languages, easier, you know, to do things. Part of me almost wishes I had stuck with it, but... I'm happy where I am now. So I think it's well, and I wonder, I'm sure that it's taught your brain how to think in a, you know, an incredibly logical way. My son does Python. So maybe I need to learn how to do that. He's been showing me some of his video game design, you know, using Python. So I'm thinking not that I'll get into gaming, but maybe I can find a way to apply it to my regulatory compliance legal career. Well, <laughs> I think I may be a step or two behind. <laughs> Well, one thing that I do find fascinating is that the video gaming industry is actually a bigger industry than Hollywood, Ooh. right? And it's mm -hmm. amazing how that whole industry has blossomed. So I find that really, really fascinating. Well, and he, some of his classes, he's learned about these professors who've gone on to do really cool Pixar stuff. So it can be very artistic too. So maybe I'll become a web artist or something. This just means that I'm expecting the revamp of the WHF website to be fabulous. You can temper your expectations. <laughs> we're we're going to contract that out, but learned a lot in the process. So, you know, old dog, new tricks kind of a thing. It's good yes. to stay nimble. Yeah. I mean, I think we're going to be learning. I mean, it's a constant yeah. learning model that we're all adopting. And it's not just about things at work, but it's also about things outside of work. And Cecilia, when I first met you, I think I remember you telling me that you were a quant. So I that was the first time I had heard that word. So I wanted to find out a little bit more. If I, if you don't mind, if I ask you a question. Not at all. So I say that from the standpoint that when I think of myself as being a quant, I mean it from the standpoint that I was math and science major in high school, engineering major, undergrad, and finance MBA. So Hi. that's what I mean. <laughs> So yeah. when I say I'm a quant, like that's what I mean, especially math is something that very much has given me the, the life that I have because I love math so much. I thought I did, but it turns out that I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not alone. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who don't find the affinity for it, but I mean, I think for me, especially being an immigrant, right, English is my second language. And so when it came to exams standardized exams, it was my math scores that got me through because universal language. Huh? I was I was still learning English when I was taking all those exams. That's amazing. So that's what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember smiling and thinking, I'm going to go look that up. You're so funny. Well, it's so nice that you actually even remember that. I mean, that was years ago. That was so long ago. So it's so nice that you remember that. Yeah, yeah. No, I remember very distinctly. So <laughs> excellent. Well, Chris, any parting thoughts? Is there anything you want to share with our audience that's listening, anything else you want to cover? 
Well, I appreciate you. I'm really interested in in your podcast. I think I'll, it will be really cool to listen to some of the different branches you look into, some of the expertise you bring on. So, well, I, I think it'll be really cool. You know, when I I've only listened to podcasts when I'm jogging, and I've only listened to ones that are sort of storytelling. You know, so I think maybe now I could learn something by listening to the Tulsia Toledo podcast. There you go. And you're more than welcome to listen to it. Excellent. (laughs) I will. Well, thanks, Chris. Thank you for being on the show. We really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode. Chris's bio is available on our website, financeandleadership.com. If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, send us an email, financeandleadership at fticonsulting.com. Tune in next time when our guest will be Kim Ullman, National Financial Wellbeing Design Lead at Capital One.